Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast was recorded in Brisbane, Australia, the land of the Turrible, Yagara, and Yagurable people. And we acknowledge all elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, everyone. It's Matt Young, and I'm back for another Chunder Chat with Michael Mendalias. How are you, Michael? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. I see you're enjoying a glass of rosé. Absolutely. It's become my new thing. I think everyone has an isolation vice, and this is mine. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so on the Chandra Chats, we get to um, talk to some of our storytellers and learn a little bit more about you. Now, I mean, I know a bit about you, or I think I do. Um, but, uh, but what do you want me to know about you? Tell me about yourself. Like, how, how should we know you? What have you been doing lately? Are you a famous actor? What's going on? I am a very, very famous... No. Um, I... Where, so where to start? I, for a long time, I was kind of defined by the fact that I was born in Melbourne. Both of my parents were Mediterranean immigrants from Melbourne. And then we moved to the Gold Coast when I was like one. So I was this sort of white Anglo, but also super wog kid growing up on the Gold Coast, um, which was like for a while really uh, a bit dissonant. Um, And then, you know, High school life happened, um, decided that I wanted to work in theatre, decided that I wanted to pursue musical theatre, um, spent two years out of high school working towards that, training, etc. did my degree at the Conservatorium, the music theatre degree, um, but I kind of always knew that I was going to be a, a straight theatre, like a, a play practitioner as well, and that's what I am mostly doing at the moment, um, working as an actor, a producer, sometimes a director and a dramaturg, basically anything that anyone will pay me for, because God knows if you want to make a living in Brisbane, you need to wear as many hats as you can. Yeah, I'm learning that very quickly. <laughs> the podcast, yes, you are. Live show, you know, gigging here and there as an actor, teaching, yeah. all that sort of business. But you also have a, um, a podcast, is that right? That's right. So my ex-housemate and one of my dearest, dearest friends, Hayden, we went to uni together. So we lived together for three years. And the first two of those years, we were at uni together at the same time. So we were spending the better part of about 12 to 20 waking hours, you know, attached at the hip. Um, And something that we both shared was um, an avid love for tea. And so we have just started as an isolation project because God knows there's no better time to start a podcast, um, a podcast called While You Were Steeping. Um, and we, we delve into tea history, 
tea culture, and then we have been very lucky to get uh, sent samples of product from um, providers all around Australia, and they send us, yeah, they send us tea, and we try it, and then we talk about it on the show. All right, and does tea um, link into your Mediterranean roots, or, or why tea? What's so fascinating? No, I think, I think tea is an inherently theatrical drink. I think people who work in work in theatre and work in performance have a have a very visceral connection to tea because it's generally the better choice for uh, voice work. It's, um, you know, it, you know, coffee is obviously very dehydrating. Um, and there are so many amazing herbal teas that you can have that will make your make your voice feel better. But it's also a very meditative and spiritual drink as well or, or it's not just a drink it's you know the practice of drinking tea and the practice of enjoying tea with others is very meditative very communal very spiritual and i think those are the kinds of things that you know theater folk and artsy folk all lean towards anyway um so i also think you know not not to get too militant about it but i think we've also kind of claimed it as a queer drink as well yeah well that's interesting <laughs> um, i grew up in massachusetts in the states and um, and like my high school theater crowd, um, we were all, um, well, we were all goody goodies in a way. Um, yeah. And strangely enough, we like a lot of us were sort of religious, but not like happy clappy, but you know, sort of like um, Catholic and sort of like you know ex into exploring that faith, like from an intellectual point of view. And mm -hmm. um, and so we didn't drink in high school. Like a lot of kids in my high school were underage drinkers, wow. but we didn't. Yeah. We all like hung around. So you were literal teetotalers? Yes. So we drank wow. teetotalers, yeah. Amazing. And of okay. course, like at the time, because we grew up in a sort of very working class sort of town, like we didn't really identify ourselves as queer at the time. And like of that group, so let's say that there were like 10 or 12 of us, like four or five of us now identify as queer. And so that's just really interesting that we found each other through theater, but we also found each other through like hanging out and drinking tea. Amazing. So that's really interesting that you say that, that you- We're gonna have to get you to tell this story on the show one day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, there's actually um, some folks are watching um, from That's that's My Cup of Tea, which is a um, ah. uh, web series, um, which is about the Asian Australian experience. And, um, and uh, Suzanne Miso, told a story about like tea and like how like tea always begins and ends her stories. You know what I mean? Oh, Which I that's so cool. Yeah. That's we amazing. Also about um, as an acting coach, like I love to do that exercise where you have to like imbrue your tea, you know, imbue your tea cup with like heat and all this sort of stuff. And so I have people sort of do that. I think it's, um, it's a, um, um, Uta Hagen sort of exercise where you have to like make your cup of tea and yeah. do you put the milk in first and you know do you use a tea bag or is it loose leaf yeah. tea or are you cooking up the chai and all that sort of business so it's funny that you say that I had a very similar I, I did an Uta Hagen class where you had to pick a menial mediocre task that you do every day that takes about two minutes to do and of course same thing I went oh well I'll make a cup of tea and so I had to bring in all of my you know all of my gear for this acting class and, and brew a cup of tea in front of, in front of, you know, seven or eight classmates. And it felt so silly, but also very, very at home. It's one of the things that makes you really realize how at home you are when you're in your kitchen doing something that you do every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, those Uta Hagen exercises are fascinating. I mean, I, I yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Really cool. So if you don't know what we're talking about, you have to look up um, Respect for Acting and 
<laughs> HB Studios in New York, blah, 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 blah. Um, okay, so, so did it also like, uh, I mean, this is a little bit of the story that you told on the story Chunder, but I did want to go back to talking about, you know, you sort of identified yourself as, you know, Mediterranean, like from immigrant stock or something like that to that effect. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is fascinating. And I mean, I think if, if anyone that's not listening, who's, fr who's not from Australia, I mean, I moved here and I'm half Polish, right? Mm -hmm. And so I moved here and then pretty quickly I played um, like Captain James Cook on television, who is like iconically like an Anglo sort of character. Yeah. But strangely enough, otherwise I was getting cast in all of the, um, in all of the ethnic shows. You know oh. what I mean? Where there would be like, I, cause I, I get cast as Northern Italian sometimes, I get cast, I've get, been, even looked at as um, as um, like Middle Eastern, which I think is interesting, or even like you know like um, Punjabi Indian. Like it's just very oh very odd. I get seen because and maybe it's because I am an other, you know, because I wasn't born. I here. think I think also Australia for a long time has been much further behind the rest of the world in terms of being uh, authentic about representation of people uh from from certain ethnic groups so i think you know for a while maybe i'm gonna say five ten fifteen years ago um someone with my features for example would have very easily and very likely been cast in uh latin american roles and i think mm. it's great that you know obviously it's fantastic that we're reaching a point in the discussion now where that would be unlikely to happen but because australia is um a more recently colonized country where there was such a long time where the the casting pool was even less diverse than it has been in other places and and there was a, a real kind of stranglehold of um of anglo representation so the second you get anybody who looks even vaguely mediterranean the the system or the or the stricture that existed said oh great we can we can use them for a whole range of ethnic representations. But realistically, I mean, you've also got to consider just the way a person looks regardless of their ethnic heritage. Like my dad was Egyptian, but I would never, I would, based on my lived experience, I would never seek or, or, or think that it would be fine for me to represent that demographic group because I've lived a very, very Anglo life. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I was asked, um, I did a Zoom thing with Through the Union, um, and it was about like interviewing, you know, like how to do an interview as an actor. And um, mm. and I was talking about this play that we're working on later in the year, um, which is this gay rom-com, which you know about. Mm -hmm. And um, the interviewer said, so, you know, and I offered that we were all, that the other actor and the director, that we were all part of the LGBT community. Um, and she said, oh, well, that's great that you told me that because that's something that I want, you know, that." would be the unspoken question, you know, if you're working on this gay play, like, you know, do you have right. that lived experience? And I, and so then she said, well, how do you feel about, you know, people from outside of that community representing you in that space? And I said, well, I said, you know, I kind of feel like at this point that it's a little bit lazy, like not to find the people that can tell, you know, can tell those stories from lived experience. Sure. And, and um, having, I, I, I completely agree. Sorry, you were going to finish your thought. No, no, I mean, and I mean, basically, what, like, ultimately, what I said is, you know, 
like it is what it is like acting is what it is and people you know play all sorts of different things for different reasons but when i go see a play and it's two straight actors in it doing a love story it doesn't feel authentic to me <laughs> yeah and i think people it... with a lived experience sure and i think that's the thing is especially when the lived experience has a real um has a really significant weight in the dramatic context of the piece and and the, and and the dramatic arc of the piece and how that lived experience impacts the character i think there are some and th there's very few they they are the lesser of the examples because we've mostly seen queer stories dominated by stories that uh, sorry, where queer themes are the central theme of the story. You know, it's very rare that we get the gift of a queer character who is incidentally queer, you know. The story is about their journey as a lawyer or as a journalist or whatever, and they just happen to be queer. That pretty much never happens. We only ever get, you know, Holding the Man and Angels in America and all of the ones that are kind of, I guess, um, queer pioneer pieces. And I love those. But... I think that's a really important question is would I, would I have an issue with a straight actor playing a queer role if the role was predominantly not about their queer lived experience? It might not bother me as much, but when that lived experience is a really vital part of the representation of that character and how it's going to impact the story and how that story is going to impact an audience, that's where that's where I start to think that it's a really, really vital part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think it's so good that um, conversations are being had and, you know, looking at writers' rooms and looking at, you know, just, yeah, I, I think it's a great, exciting thing that's happening right now. Yeah. Um, you know, not just for queer people, but for, you know, like just all marginalized groups. Um, because entertainment has been very much swayed in one direction for a very long time, but that's another conversation <laughs> for another time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, great. So now we know a bit about you, a bit about, you know, where you come from. And so do you want to just briefly tell us the story that you told us on the story gender? Like, you know, I'm going to play it at the end of the episode. Not, not retell the story, but in, yeah. Um... Give us a <laughs> snapshot of it. Yeah, so the story that I told was for the Remembrance episode, and I talked about the fact that for me, a, a way that I really, really connect with memories of people and memories of times and places is through um, sentimental objects. And so the story that I told was about the fact that my furniture in my house, which I've had with me since I moved out of my parents' house, so I've had most of this furniture for the better part of about five years, all belonged to my nonna. And she passed away about a year before I moved out of home. And so when it was time for me to move uh, out of home, all of this stuff needed to be dealt with. So I took it. Um, and so I have all this gorgeous um, old, old, old furniture. And just dealing with kind of what that means to me and what the significance of, of those objects are. And also the feeling of, I guess, social and moral responsibility of having your nonna's shit in your house <laughs> and, you know, did, did, I don't know. I, I never really talk about whether or not that comes with any ideas of guilt or anything, but I think I definitely said there was a while there where I wasn't sure about having, you know, having fun times on the couch or anything, because that would be odd, I think, on my nonna's couch. So do you feel that, um, 
Yeah, I mean, so, so it sounds like maybe you feel that like her spirit or, you know, the, like, or at least the essence of her, like is still imbued in these objects. Is that right? I think so. And I think what's really interesting is that I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a religious person. And I am a spiritual person, but I, I definitely don't, I don't think that I subscribe to the idea that people stick around. But she was very Catholic. Mm. And so because of that, I think she would have subscri subscribed to the idea that she is present in all of her furniture that I have. And therefore, because she would have believed it, I have to believe it of her. Do you have icons of hers? No, nothing, nothing. Virgin Mary's I, th like I think maybe we have some of her rosary beads at mum's place, but I don't have them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So no, no, definitely not. I would, she used to have a little, I think she used to have a crucifix above the bed. Classic, again, classic Italian. Um, but no, I, I would, I would feel a bit strange about that. So, um, so in one of the, the other questions I always ask the storytellers is about um, like follow-up from, you know, like of the story, like has anything changed with the story since you told it or, you know, like mm. where is that furniture now or is that part of the story? I can't really remember. Actually, it's a good question. I was going to say that nothing's changed because it's been five years and everything is, is still where it is. But actually my mum has just gotten some new stuff in her place and needs to get rid of her old stuff, including a couch and whatnot. And so the conversation was had of, oh, well, maybe since, you know, since this furniture is getting pretty old now, maybe I should get rid of it. And <laughs> once again, cheapskate that I am, inherit, you know, the stuff that mum's getting rid of. And I, I can't do it. I can't bring myself to, because I've formed such a sentimental attachment to so much of this furniture that even though mum's furniture is newer and better, I don't think it would feel right in, in my house. Mm. Mm. So there you go. There's the development. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, we have like, I, I, I think I told you this when you told your story that I had this lamp that belonged to my babshi, you know, my grandmother, and then I sort of left it out on the street and, you know, I went off to it. Ah, so sorry. Um, I set an alarm and it keeps going off and um, I don't want to interrupt the thing and turn it off. So I'll just edit later. <laughs> Amazing. But anyway, um, yeah, so we had this lamp and we put it out on the street and then it went away, you know, someone picked it up and now I'm like, oh man, what happened to that lamp? You know, like that was yeah. so special to me. But um, yeah, and I'm looking around the, the flat right now and there's like nothing, like we're on like a koala couch, you know, that we just bought online, you know, there's like, it's all sort of Ikea and all this sort of stuff. And so, um, but it's funny because in Fiji, in the house that we have in Fiji, which we're packing up to move back here, we have like all this furniture that's old from family like a lot of it's from actually the flu pandemic um oh. you know from 100 years ago um yeah like like there were i don't remember the exact story but it's my husband's story to tell but i think like both the mother and the father of a family of three sisters died and so then like it became like the dead aunt's furniture you know what i mean like so we've got like all this sort of like silky oak queensland you know, yes. silky oak sort of furniture and that's all Fiji. And of course, like the termites have got to it because that's what happens. Of course. Like and, um, but then we also have bought like these old things. Like we've got this um, 
like this 16th century French bed and, you know, and like this refractory nuns, like nuns refractory table from like, you know, the 1700s and all this sort of stuff. So hang on. Does the French bed have like, it doesn't have like four posts, does it? It does. Have you <gasps> seen, um, Sel the, is it Selridge's that, um, that TV show about Selfridge about the department I, store in the UK? Oh, I don't think so. No. Mr. Selfridge. Anyway, I think Francis O'Connor's on it. Um, but anyway, there's like that bed is like in that show. Yeah, it's got like, you know, the the curvy thing is the four poster and all this sort of stuff. And it's short, like we had to have a mattress made for it because it, you know, it's from that time period where people were smaller and so the mattresses weren't as long. <laughs> so yeah, that's our furniture. And that's we bought amazing. that for each other as um, a 10th wedding anniversary. Well, not wedding anniversary, a 10th anniversary gift. Because right. we couldn't get married because, you know, God forbid those gays could have got married before 2017, which is perplexing. Uh, <laughs> Selfridges. Oh, there we go. Christo. Yes. Thanks, Vanessa. Yeah, so if you watch the first episode, you will see a bed that is very similar to ours. <laughs> okay. Um, cool. And so, so, like, you're an actor. I mean, what... Do, what inspired you to be a storyteller or, or do you consider yourself to be a storyteller or, you know, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. What inspires you to tell stories? I think it's funny. I've never had that kind of performing bug that a lot of people look like us have. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy it. And obviously, you know, you come out after a show and the applause feels great and everything. But for me, I always... So when I was a little kid, like up until about eight or nine or 10, I was really into science and I wanted to be a scientist of some kind. And I never got far enough into that, into that dream to get specific with it, but I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And then as I got older, um, a lot of people around me started to kind of identify things in my personality and put ideas into my head that I could be like a leader. And so I had this idea that I would become a politician or whatever, some, some kind of leader on the world stage, and that I was going to, again, much like a scientist might, change the world for the better. And then I started to discover drama and just d doing plays and doing theatery things. And in my teens, once I started going to see a lot of theatre, I started to experience how viscerally it had the the power to, to change a person and, and how much it had the power to reshape people's perspectives, reframe people's ideas, and that by changing a, person, a, a person's behaviour or a person's outlook, you could change the world through microcosms. So changing, changing macrocosms by impacting microcosms. And that's mm -hmm. like a really gross intellectual way of putting it. But it kind of, for me, typifies... When, when I can remember why I do this, um, it typifies what for me is really important about being an artist of any kind, whether that's, whether that's storytelling or music or whatever, is that you can hopefully reawaken something human in people that will remind them to be more compassionate, more intelligent, more thoughtful, more uh, patient, more resourced, whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. And that that in turn will spread like waves and change the world in a really microcosmic way. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, because we know each other because we we did this um, cabaret together. 
And yeah. the song that you sang was very much a story. Um, yes. Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens. Yeah. Um, that was really a beautiful, I was, so, I was so glad to be able to, you know, steal that, steal that woman's song and, and, and take it for my own. And um, it, it always meant something to me. We, we did that show when I was at uni and that one always kind of really, really stuck out to me because it just had a, a feeling of a, a time long gone, but also of a, of a reminder of not taking things and people for granted. Lost you. No, there you go. Oh, you're very popular. Alarms, phone calls, it's all, it's all the rage. Uh, Maddie's all the rage. I, I totally screwed up this Facebook, uh, Facebook Live. I don't even know where I am. <laughs> Instagram. But it's okay, because I'll just sort of like do magic editing stuff. Um, yeah. But no, but I mean, interestingly enough as well, like, you know, again, like we were talking about, you know, your ancestry, you know, and, and your Nana's furniture. And that, again, is we're talking about, you know, these are stories that have been passed on in the queer community as well. And I mean, I think that that's what something that I found so interesting about the story Chunder, because I've sort I sort of like stole. Well, I didn't sort of. I mean, I stole it from a friend of mine. I mean, like, how could you not steal the idea of storytelling? I mean, you know, it's been around for you know tens of thousands Forever. of years, especially in this yeah. country. Um, oh God, yeah. And um, but it's because you know, well, for part of his documentary is doc documentary. Like, I'm fascinated with documentary, and I just want to hear people's stories. And, you know, it's interesting because um, my mother-in-law died in 2006. And, um, and we sort of like were trying to get like recordings of her, you know what I mean? For her to tell those stories. Because mm -hmm. um, she actually didn't meet our kids because we were adoptive parents and our kids moved in the year after she um Wow. She yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by storytelling and... Um, yeah, I'm just always humbled when people want to come and share a story at the Story Chunder because I'm like, because, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's embarrassing or, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I find it was interesting when we did the Pride one. Um, we did an Insta Live Pride and it was um, uh, Bill Standish told a story and Shalise Vandell told a story. And I told a story about sort of my coming out and stuff. And I was so, like, uncomfortable and embarrassing, embarrassed to talk about it. And here I'm at 48, you know, thinking that I'm, you know, totally woke and at peace and I've conquered my own, you know, homophobia or biphobia or whatever. And I was like a total wreck. Um, it wakes stuff up in you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I love hearing people's stories and then being able to reflect. And I think that's part of what I enjoy and part of why I keep doing it is I can sort of reflect back. Oh, yeah. You know, I had similar experience. You know, regardless of who the person is telling the story, there's going to be something in that story that I'm like, Yes, I relate to that. I relate to that. Mm -hmm. And also, I think as actors, I mean, I think that's a great thing, you know what I mean? To be able to see ourselves in the different characters that we play. And something else that I love is the, the kind of long throw ways in which you can sometimes engage with something. Like sometimes you'll go and see a piece of theatre and just because of the, the way that it's written or, or, the, or the people involved or whatever, it might not speak to a single lived experience that you have. It might not speak to anything that really relates to you on a, on a kind of first person kind of level. But there's always some kind of really abstract arc that you can go oh actually you know what that makes me think of this and and then immediately again you're retooling your perceptions re 
reinvigorating your ideas about a whole bunch of things and re and revisiting as well, revisiting memories, revisiting visceral memory as well. Yeah. How do you top up as an artist? Um, you know, either as a director or a storyteller. Is <laughs> That's there, a like, very good question. Area that you go to to top up. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and I think that's part of what I've struggled with during this COVID thing, you know, especially when we, we, you know, during the stay home is that I always am looking to external things to top up. So that's really interesting. Yes. Um, I, I think a funny thing is as obviously as you get older, more experienced, more professional, whatever, the, the sad reality of being a professional artist is that there's always going to be less things that really punch you in the guts and make you think, oh, wow, that was incredible. That was, that was so amazing. It moved me so deeply. Because as you get more technical and more proficient as a, as a practitioner, more things will be less impressive to you. So I think for me, something, something that's really hard about topping up is I kind of just have to wait for something to grab me. Um, I'm going to go off on a little tangent, but I think you'll enjoy this. I, I started working at QPAC um, as a front of house, as an usher about a year ago, which meant that I was seeing a lot of shows multiple times, like whatever was in the lyric theater, you know, the big touring musicals. So I saw the Book of Mormon 27 times while I was working it. Um, and it's a great show. Of course, it's a great show, but you obviously with anything, you get desensitized to it. Um, and, and you also, through a building like that, you see a lot of stuff, good and bad, come through. Technically, good and bad. I don't mean um, subjectively. I mean literally stuff that's either just objectively well done or not. Um, and so you start to get a little bit, you, or you can, I did at least, get quite jaded. And then one night I got called into a shift really last minute and I was able to do it. So I said, yeah, sure. And I didn't know what I was going to work. And I arrived in the briefing room and they give us the, you know, the briefing sheet and it's in the concert hall. And I'm like, oh, okay, what's it going to be? Another Beatles tribute or whatever. And it was Gladys Knight. And she's, I'm going to say she's like 70 something at this point, but it was Gladys Knight with a massive band, three incredible African-American uh, backup singers, sorry, African-American backup singers. Um, and, oh, my God, it was just one of, those, one of those moments where everything you've ever felt about hope, dreams, life, all, all the good shit that just makes you go, this is, we were created to pursue amazing things. I was just completely reminded of and reinvigorated with and and you know, out-of-body experience kind of shit because she was just so alive and, and nurturing of an audience. You know, she was so fun and vivacious and ridiculously musically incredible. And all of these things, it was just one of those experiences that just knocked me out of my mind. I can see that Laura's asking me about Douglas, which I also got to see, Hannah, Hannah Gadsby's Douglas in the concert hall, which I worked, and similarly, equally brilliant um, and very... That was different. That was, that was intellectually really enlightening for me. It was, I, I had an amazing time. But Gladys Knight kind of just, you know, picked me up by the feet and threw my heart into a wall in a really good way to just make it... Think like a... Um, uh, uh, a defibrillator. 
That's what it was. It was an artistic defibrillator for me, mm. just literally clear and sparks on my chest. And all of a sudden I just had all this artistic drive again. So yeah. that's how I top up is I go and see stuff and I wait for something to knock me off my feet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's so, that's awesome. And, um, it's, it's always, it's sometimes it's a surprise, right? You know, like for me, um, I went to see Olivia Newton-John in California. In yeah, right. 2001. And it was spectacular. <laughs> like she, she had Chloe come out and Chloe Latanza come out and do some singing as well. And, you know, and it was just this like weird thing where like, who would have known, you know, like it was sort of like, we were just my, you know, my husband's Australian, obviously. And so we were over there with other Aussies and we were like, hey, ONJ is playing, let's go and see it. Like, you know, sort of that's like this camp funny, like, ha ha ha. Amazing, then yeah. It was like, she's such an amazing performer and her, her story, the, what, the story she put together in the concert was so well constructed, you know, because she was talking about environmentalism and, you know, as well as her career. And plus, like, we were in California, so we were near LA. So there were people in the audience, you know, that were involved in her early career. Um, as a, you know, in film, in Greece, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just this kind of like unbelievable thing that we never would have expected. I mean, obviously- And you just see it. never forget it, right? Like it's just oh. one of those things that you just never forget. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, great. All right, cool. Um, I don't really know what else to ask you. I mean, do you have anything else you want to share with me? Oh God, it's, it's really hard in terms of, you know, where to, where to go, where, where, where to pivot off to. Um, it's such an interesting time, I think, to be an artist. And it's been really interesting watching everybody be so hopeful and so, um, uh, so, yeah, so optimistic in, in the wake of all of this stuff. And I'm, I'm inherently a pretty pragmatic person, which is, I think, why I became a producer. And I'm also a pretty pragmatic artist as well. Um, I, I always come at things from a very kind of, again, technical, um, how, how do we make this effective in, in the most, in the most um, if, efficient way? Um, so it's been such a weird time to be thinking about theatre making and, and thinking about, you know, what, what, is going to be demanded after all of this massive cultural shift that we've experienced in the last eight months. And I, 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 I don't know what the next few years is going to look like on, on our landscape. I don't know what it's going to look like economically. I don't know what it's going to look like theoretically, ideologically. And I'm really excited for that because I think it'll be, I think it'll be a big metamorphosis. And I think, you know, lots of, Lots of amazing stuff will come out of all the nitty gritty ugliness. And I hope that some systems will collapse and be, and be I built really anew. Hope, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I really hope some of those systems will collapse. And I mean, there's no, you know, not to put fault on anybody, you know, who is, you know, in that position, in those gatekeeper positions right now. Um, because, you know, they couldn't have anticipated any of what 2020 had to bring. But um, yeah, but hopefully everybody who is in those gatekeeper, gatekeeper positions right now are sort of going, oh, okay, now I'm a little mm. bit more aware that, you know, maybe I need to look at things from a different angle.
Well, but I think it's really interesting as well, thinking about it just from a purely, you know, economic and commercial perspective is that for so long, and Brisbane's a great example of this, you know, we've had very few, maybe one or two major companies in each city. And they, they kind of, again, much like the rest of Western capitalism, these key players, these key players hold all of the wealth and all of the capital. And therefore, they also hold all of the all of the focus from, from an audience base. And then you've got all these um, small to medium companies and, and, and artists and whatnot. And it's not that these people up at the top are necessarily evil, by no means, but the system is not sustainable and it's not, and it's not really financially viable. And we've seen that. We've seen that in independent theatre models. And mm. what is so interesting to me is how much this crisis, this, this pandemic, has brought that to light because uh, a more widely spread and very small to medium sector, you know, an industry that was dominated 80% by the small to medium sector, and if that sector had been properly financially viable, would have fared much better in a crisis like this than one where all of the political, theatrical, and uh, personal capital moves up to the top. Um, mm. I think so. So that's really interesting to me, at least. Mm. Yeah. I Sorry, mean, I, I got I got very prosaic on you there. No, but I think it's interesting, and I think it's such an interesting conversation to have. I mean, I I don't know much about the play that you did last year, the the removalist, but that's it's not the revisionist. Play, is it? A revisionist. No, so the revision, the removalists was done by a Sydney company just just this year. I think they did that with Alec Baldwin, um, okay. and they did it they did right, it on right. Zoom, which was really cool. The revisionist, you're right, was by Jesse Eisenberg, um, the you know the actor from The Social Network and mm. and whatnot. And he's written a few plays. He's actually written, I think, three. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah, we we did that late last year. That was that was the debut show for our company. Um, and Which and Refraction Theatre is, is my company, our company. Uh, it's basically run now by me and my colleague, Oliver Sampson. Um, and yeah, and that, and that was an amazing, an amazing process because it was basically our shameless excuse to work with incredible people um, and kind of put ourselves on the map by working with incredible people. Um, and we managed to do that and hopefully deliver something that was pretty cool. Um, but it was, it was great. But it was, again, it feels like guerrilla warfare half the time. Independent theatre producing is just you're working with nothing yeah. um, against what feels like the most monolithic uh, forces because you're trying to be seen in a world where you can't be seen unless you have money. Um, and so when you have no resources, that, that fight feels the same as being, yeah, you know, insurgent, insurgent warfare. Yeah, and I think people don't realise um, when they see independent theatre, you know, like how much money actually goes into it. You yes. Know, like, like we are looking to raise, you know, $10,000 for our production, which will be like a two-week production at, you know, yep. a very small theatre here in Brisbane. And people are like, wow, that's a lot of money. I'm like, well, we could probably do it, you know, with a different budget, but that's sort of where we see it heading. Because and, and you need to again, you want to pay like people. How's that sustainable? <laughs> yeah, Pardon? I say because you want to pay people. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's 
yeah, it's a funny thing. It's a, and it's a very, I mean, the model is changing very slowly. The model is changing compared to, I'd say five to 10 years ago, but yeah, it, it's going to, it's going to take some seismic shifting. Yeah. And then there's all these plays, you know, that um, like I'm friends with Lachlan Philpott, for example, and um, in Camping Descent. And there's all these plays, like these great Australian plays that sort of get like one season. And mm -hmm. then, I mean, sometimes the universities do them, but so sometimes they just sort of like disappear. disappear. And like, oh, oh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's been great to, because like Lee, um, Lee Lewis at uh, Queensland Theatre Company has been pulling out some of those out of the archives. And, For those readings, reading, yeah, and, and yeah. those readings are fantastic. And this is the thing, again, you know, it's not the fault of the majors that some of, the, that some of these works go unseen because they can only program so much in one year, you know, when you've, when you've only got each of the state companies and, and you know, the Lablats and whatnot doing the material that they're doing, they can only do, you know, five or six or eight pieces in a year. So again, you know, if we had a larger scale medium sector, that would be where a lot of those gaps would start to be filled. Um, but, you know, the infrastructure needs to be there for that. And I do, I do believe that that's changing, um, but it, it's going to take some time. Yeah. All right, great. Well, thank you, Michael Mendalios. It's been lovely nice. having a chat with you. And, thank you uh, so much for having me. Yeah, and sorry about like all my. I'm like. Ugh. I'm. Sh I'm a pretty lot, sure it was a lot more lot grief than for you than it was for me. I. D I didn't really have any issues. Okay, good. <laughs> I hopefully our audience will. Well, our audience four who are watching us right now will forgive us. Um, but either way, it's all going to become a podcast anyway. So nobody will even know that anything happened. It's all going to be smick and beautiful. Um, great. And so, where can we hear your podcast? Uh, so while you were steeping is on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and you can find it on the That's Not Canon Productions website, which is also where you can hear the story chunder, of course. Story so chunder. that's right. So uh, it's, it's also a That's Not Canon Productions podcast, and you can find us on Instagram at Steeping Podcast, or you can find us on Facebook, uh, and you can also find me on Instagram at Michael Mandelios. Fantastic. And is there anything else you want to promote? Anything else is coming up? I can't, I can't talk about anything that's coming up at the moment because nothing, nothing's locked in. It's all developments of, which is really exciting, um, but it's all developments of new scripts, which means there's no, you know, there's, there's no seasons and there's, and there's uh, embargoes on, on conversations. <laughs> yeah, no worries. But yay, yay new it. work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, great. Um, great to see you again online and hopefully we'll see you in lobbies, uh, theaters and uh, other such places of art making as is appropriate um, with restrictions. And um, yeah, and yeah, no, it's great. It's been really great. It's been thank you for the chat. And, um, and I'll play your story at the end of this when it becomes a podcast. Can't wait to give you a big old hug in a foyer sometime soon. Exactly. All right, Michael, thank you so much. And thank Bye. you for checking in. This has been the Chunder Chat with Michael Vandalios and Matt Young in part of the Story Chunder podcast. All right. Okay, so in many ways, it's actually very, very believable, really. Um, but I, I got thinking about remembrance and how we all, we all like to remember people and remember things in our own unique ways. And I'm a big hoarder. Um, I have a lot of junk in my life and a lot of stuff that I accumulate. But I also um, ascribe a lot of sentimental value to 
to objects. So whether it's souvenirs that I've gotten from travel or things from my childhood or anything like that. And a big thing for me, like a lot of people, is that I imbibe a lot of sentimental value in objects that I've gotten from family members. Now, as I mentioned, I'm from a Greek and Italian background. My dad's side's Greek, mum's side's Italian. So you'd expect that I'd have a really big family, but it's actually quite small. Uh, mum's an only child and dad only has one sister. So when I was little, the biggest Christmases that we ever had were about 12 or 13 people. Um, and then when I was eight, both of dad's parents passed away in the same year. So my yaya and my papu were gone. I never met my mum's dad, my nonno, uh, because he passed away when she was in her late 20s. Um, which meant from 8 to about eight, uh, 19 or 20 or so, um, my nonna was my only living grandparent. Uh, and so, of course, the, the familial connection that I had to her was very, very strong. Um, and when she passed away, she passed away just before I started my first year of uni in 2013. And then in 2015, I decided it was time to move out of home because I needed to, um, I needed to, you know, really, really be closer to Brisbane for, for uni. And so it had been a year since Nonna had passed away and mum needed to kind of clear out her house of the stuff so that we could start renting out my Nonna's house. So we needed to clear this house out at exactly the same time that I needed to move into my own place as, a, as an adult. So we shipped up pretty much all of the contents of my nonna's house up to Brisbane and then sorted through them in my first home out of home. Um, and basically, well, we, we sent a couple of things, fragile things or sentimental things back to my mum's place. But in my first home, probably 80% of the furniture in that house was my nonna's furniture. And some of it was, you know, just crockery, little stuff. Um, and then some of it was really big pieces. So my bed. Um, and I'll give you a little view of this dresser, which, as you can see, is wooden and, you know, very old and very ornate. And my nonna had that as long as I can remember. Um, so, you know, I had been seeing it and associating it with her for about 20 years. And along with that, there's also these huge wooden cabinets made of the same wood, um, wardrobe cabinets. Then, you know, there's a dining table, a couch, um, this huge credenza, which if you don't know what a credenza is, it's a very large standing cabinet and the top half is made of glass and you keep, you know, crockery, wine glasses, crystalware, and we got like all of her old crystal and whatnot. And in my last five houses, sorry, five years, three houses, I've always had all of this furniture and taken it with me. And of course, you know, it, it, it brings about, like, interesting questions about, like, how I'm, how I'm living, you know, in, in her stead, I suppose. And I always try to be mindful of how she'd want me to live my life and, um, and how she'd feel about me having all of her stuff in my life. Um, and the couch in particular is an interesting one because um, for the first, you know, two or three years I was living with two other um, of my closest queer male friends. And I would always make jokes about, you know, don't, 
don't do anything on my nonna's couch. Don't, don't have boys over on my nonna's couch because I will murder you. Um, and then sure enough, you know, five years of, of living with all of this furniture and you start to go, oh, how, would, how would my very Catholic, very dead nonna feel about the things that I'm doing on this furniture? Um, and of course, my bed, my bed was hers as well. She had this bed for a long, long time. Um, so, and then it's been almost six years now that I've had all of this furniture. And the weird thing is it starts to become yours. You know, you overwrite the memory and you start to associate these things more with yourself than you did with the person that you inherited them from. And then every now and then I'll just catch a glimpse of something. I'll, I'll pick up, you know, especially God, if I go into that credenza with all that crystal wear, if I, you know, just take a, take a glance at anything at all, all of a sudden I'll get a really vivid image of the same piece of furniture, but in her old house where I remember it. And, and it all comes back and all of this kind of, not burden, but certainly responsibility and warmth and, um, and, and a very, very strong association. Um, and I can't bring myself to get rid of any of it. The couch is really, it needs to go. Uh, it's, it's really getting there. Um, especially after our first house, we, it, long story, but it got very dirty very quickly in our first house because of where we were living. Um, but I, I just keep paying to get it cleaned. I keep doing everything I can to keep it alive. Um, and it, it really needs to go. But yeah, it's very, very hard to, um, especially with, again, big ornate stuff like that. I can't really conceive ever, ever selling it. Um, so yeah, that for me is one of the, one of the most intricately bound ways that I remember my family. Um, because I get to keep little bits of them in my house with me constantly, which is very, very lucky for me. Um, but yeah, as much as as much as I think she would have wanted me to live my best life, there's always that little that little overhanging Catholic guilt there um, with my very very Italian grandmother. Hey Hayden, did you know that the American Revolution was sparked almost entirely by a squabble over tea and taxes? What? I didn't know that. But did you know that tea used to be taken with salt instead of sugar? I did not know that. But there's a new podcast on That's Not Canon Productions Network called While You Were Steeping. A curatorial tea and culture podcast. Presented by me, Michael Mandelios. And me, Hayden Rogers. We also sample, taste and review locally sourced teas every week. Mmm, delicious. So follow us on at Steeping Podcast on either Instagram or Facebook for more details. Thanks again. It's been Matt Young with the Story Channel Podcast. And that was our special guest, Michael Mandalios. Check us out on all social media at The Story Chunder. If you want to tell us a story, you can send us an email, thestorychunder at gmail.com. Otherwise, reach out to us on all of our socials, select us, follow us, subscribe to us, rate us, all those good things. And we will see you next week with more stories from our live event. Thanks again. Take care.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.